You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Matthew 15, 32 to 16, 12. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides the women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, then they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, They had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets were gathered? or the seven loaves for the 4,000, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Good morning, Christchurch Toronto. It's an honor and pleasure to share God's word and preach God's word with you this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gathering of your people and the assembly of your body this morning in this place. As we worship you, would you be pleased? As we read from your word, may your spirit convict our hearts of its truth and its revelation. We ask, O Lord, that this word would be a word unto our hearts, that it would move and mold us and shape us into Christ-likeness. Thank you and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Our sermon uh, will be focused on the text from Matthew 15, 32 to 39. Now we've read into 16, verse 12. We'll be focusing on the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. I've entitled the sermon, The Seven Loaves. Um, and you might uh, see in your bulletins that says Feeding of the Nations. Um, and it's going to make a lot of sense by the end of the sermon, hopefully. 
Now, in our previous passage, we saw depicted for us an episode uh, between Jesus and a Canaanite woman. In Mark 7, this woman is described as a Syrophoenician woman, a woman who was of Greek descent and of Canaanite origin, meaning she was a Gentile in the eyes of the Jews. What we observed in that pericope was a Gentile demonstrating, or if you were here last week, Kyle mentioned modeling for us uh, great faith that Jesus uniquely acknowledges and describes as great in all of the Gospels. Her plea is to heal her daughter, and the response she receives from Christ is, is peculiar and particular. But what we learn through Jesus' response to this woman is the flow of God's redemptive plan and work that can be traced back all the way in the beginnings of our scriptures in Genesis to Abraham and the covenant that's given to him and promised to him that we see in Genesis 12, 17, and 19. There you'll find a covenant first for Abraham, and in that covenant, contents of a blessing for the, his descendants to come, but ultimately a blessing that will flow to the nations. Now from the lost sheep of the house of Israel, will the children's bread and its crumbs be fed now to those not yet at the master's table? But make no mistake about it, the plan all along from God's end was that this table of our great master was to have a composition, a diversity of the nations eating at it and eating the bread that only our Lord can provide. From an image of sharing and eating with this Syrophoenician woman, we now find ourselves in verse 32 to verse 39, a depiction of Jesus actually feeding and having a feast with people, with a large crowd. Um, now, when you read this particular passage, you might find it familiar to something we read just a chapter earlier in Matthew 14, and you wouldn't be wrong. It's very similar to that for sure. Um, but what we find in these verses and is Jesus having compassion over a crowd yet again, and he plans not to send these people off without having fed them his bread. Now, for most of my life, I lived with my grandmother, and I don't know if any of you have lived with your grandmothers, uh, but my grandmother is uh, particularly old. She's 95 years old now, um, and quite sprite, actually, and you can imagine what an inventory of stories a person that has lived nearly a century uh, would have in their minds. The problem is not so much the quantity of stories to tell in her, in her brain, but the frequency of the telling of those same stories repetitively over and over again as the human mind ages. So goes, of course, uh, the recollection of to whom we told our tales. She tends to forget who she told these stories to. So I read somewhere online, I don't know if this is completely true, but of course it's online, so you gotta take it with a grain of salt, but it may or may not be true that the human mind has essentially two storage facilities for long-term and short-term memory. And that the long-term storage takes a while to diminish once it's stored in there, while the short-term memories quickly dissipate. I imagine that's really why my grandmother's told me probably at least 15 times now about how she raised her three kids on her own as she became a widow very, uh, very many, many years ago now. And yet I constantly catch her walking to the kitchen only to forget what she went there for so she can recollect all these stories from decades ago and yet forget what she went to the kitchen for. Now some have accused Matthew and also Mark in his gospel of the same sort of memory condition, short-term memory loss, in the sense uh, that it appears that this story is a repetition of a previous one or a prior story. Um, but I don't think that is the case, right? Um, I um, lost my place here. Some have accused 
Matthew of this and, and Mark of this. And uh, it seems to be that the previous feeding of the 5,000 found in chapter 14 is repeated here in chapter 15. Now, all of the same elements of, uh, exist in these two stories, or at least similar elements exist in these two stories. The large crowd, Jesus' compassion, the disciples not knowing what to do, the bread and the fish, the giving of thanks, the breaking of bread, the distribution to the masses to their satisfaction, and leftovers being collected after. Because of these stark similarities, some scholars have drawn the assumption that the disciples are recalling the same story twice, what we call a doublet in literature. But is that what we have here? Now, a careful reading of the text indicates to us that although there are similarities to the previous narrative and the previous feeding narrative in particular, this version also contains some stark differences. We have a difference in location, a difference in the number of attendees, a difference in quoted speech and dialogue, a difference in the sequence of events, and finally, a difference in the number of bread and the amount left over. But separate feedings serve, uh, but why then would Matthew have this narrative shared twice in his gospel? Do these potentially separate feedings serve two separate purposes in their teachings? It's safe to say that we have enough reason to believe that this is no doublet at all. This is not my grandmother sharing the same story over and over again, but rather a unique narrative that Matthew felt contributed towards his telling of Christ's gospel. So let's take a closer look here. I got three quick points to kind of frame our sermon and understanding of the text today. The first point I've entitled, From Jew to Gentile, or to the nations, if you will. The second point, Jesus' compassion, Christ's compassion. And third, liberation for those that are satisfied. Three simple points to frame our understanding so you can follow along with me. Let's look at the first point, from Jew to Gentile. Now, the first major difference that we need to establish is tied to the geography of where uh, we find ourselves, and specifically Jesus and the Twelve today. We are still, by all accounts, in the region of Decapolis. Tyre and Sidon is mentioned uh, in the prior passage. As we recalled earlier in the tale of Syrophoenician women, and Matthew also mentions the healing ministry that Christ undertook along the Sea of Galilee, where those healed came to glorify it mentions the God of Israel. The language of verse 31 reveals to us that Jesus is very much dealing with a Gentile crowd. There's been no indication from Matthew as of yet that Jesus has left this region, which would explain the continual presence of this large crowd, and more importantly for us, the ethnic makeup of this crowd. Recall the Syrophoenician woman one more time and remember Jesus' response to her. The point was this, that Jesus' ministry was first to accomplish something in Israel, the children of God, but that the food on the table for them would eventually flow down and become food for all. We were reminded of the Abrahamic covenant in which God promised to bless Abraham's descendants, but to also bless the nations. The plan of God all along was a plan for the nations, not just the singular people group, although that group Israel would be the first to receive, they would not be the last. So why are we noting this again here? The first feeding of the 5,000 happened in Jewish Galilean territory with a Jewish crowd that ate the bread and fish and they were satisfied. Here, we have another feeding of very similar scope, but this time in Gentile territory with a Gentile crowd. I imagine the disciples recalling these two separate events through their memory and realizing in hindsight that these two miracles may have been the same in nature, 
but distinct in teaching purpose, the purpose to show redemptive history and how God will bring the nations to himself, draw the nations to himself as Christ Emmanuel draws to us. What an extraordinary revelation that must have been for Matthew and the other apostles, namely Peter, who if you read in Acts chapter 10, is shown, the vi is shown vividly the fruit of such teaching as food that was once unclean to the Jews is brought down to him in a vision. He refuses to eat it, but then is told that this food is now permissible to eat. The table is now open. The Gentiles are now sitting with the Jews, the master's table, to eat of the same food. Brothers and sisters, look around this room. The diversity, the makeup of God's people is not ethnically singular. Our identity is not tied to a political nation or ethnic origin, but rather it is tied to the hand that feeds us. It is tied to Christ. Union with him is union with the nations and the people of God who have faith in Christ as Savior of all and Lord of all. The church that Christ will claim as his bride is not Jewish alone, but rather diverse in its composition, and we praise God for this. Scholars have noted and directed attention to the, to the detail of leftovers both in both feeding miracles. The first feeding having 12 baskets of food left, and in the second, having seven left. I'm not too familiar nor, nor really keen on reading too much into the numbers in scripture, but in cases like these, it's hard to ignore the fact that this number is not only mentioned in both Matthew and Mark, but it's almost emphasized to us at the conclusion, as an exclamation, if you will, uh, to the miracle feedings that we find in both Gospels. And of course, we find that in Jewish tradition, the number 12 signifies governmental perfection. We see this, of course, in the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, this number is derived likely from that case. Seven is the number of spiritual perfection, seven days of creation. What started in Israel is perfected in the nations is one way I think you could look at this. Here's a second point for today's sermon, Jesus's compassion. And I would note his personal compassion to us. I want you to compare these two verses from the first feeding of the 5,000 to the second in the 4,000. Here's the first one in the 5,000. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That comes from Mark. The second, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. That's the, that's the 4,000. Here's another example to compare and contrast. From the first, you give, you give them something to eat, Jesus declares to the disciples. And from the second, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. What do you notice in the compare and contrast of these two passages? In the first example, from the first miracle, we see Jesus' compassion over the crowd, and in the second, we also see mirrored his compassion over the crowd. But note the change in grammar, the way that Matthew and Mark note this for us. In the first quote, it is written to us in the third person, he felt compassion over them. And in the, in, and in the second, of course, we see the shift to the first person, I feel compassion for them. It's not a huge difference per se. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus has compassion over his people. But the compassion of Jesus for both is certainly true, whether it be Israel or the nations, the Gentiles. But it deepens, in a sense, to a personal compassion in expression, 
in the second miracle. That is not to say that Jesus has more quantitative compassion in the second. And remember, we're dealing with a record here. So Jesus, in the moment, would have expressed his compassion for both groups uh, in the first person. But in our hearing of these two narratives, as it is written for us, we see a distinction that is meant to help us see that Jesus is drawing a crowd to himself in this Gentile region in the same sense that Israel is drawn to Yahweh in the Old Testament. It is a crowd that would naturally feel distant from a Jewish Messiah. And so it switches to almost a personal tone. In the first miracle, Jesus directs the disciples to find food for the crowd to eat. This after the disciples asked Jesus to send them away so that they could find their own food. But here in the second, Jesus indicates absolutely no intention to send them away hungry. The disciples who are Jewish by ethnic origin are asked by Jesus to feed this Gentile crowd, a foreshadow of things to come for sure as they become the apostles, which is played out to us uh, by the odd sequence in today's text. So did you catch that? When Jesus makes it clear his plan to feed the 4,000, you would think that the disciples would recall the feeding of the 5,000 from memory and give Jesus emphatically the food that they had in possession. But instead, they question in verse 33, if you look at your Bibles, where such an amount of food could possibly be found. And when they are asked what food they do have, only then do they reveal that they have in possession seven loaves of bread. It's odd, isn't it? Why were they delayed in presenting this bread to Jesus, let alone the fish as well? Was it that they forgot the previous miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? Highly unlikely. But perhaps it was that they were forgetting. Uh, perhaps it wasn't that they were forgetting, as some have suggest, su suggested, nor doubting, as others have suggested, but rather reluctant in giving to those they would not want to. Jonah particularly comes to mind. They are Jews after all, and amongst the people and in a region that they would not associate with under any normal circumstance. The Jews there had all the food needed for the 12 to eat, and it was them who would need to give it up to the hands of Christ and allow for it to be broken and distributed to those Gentiles in need so that they too could eat and be satisfied. You're starting to connect the dots and see the imagery of this particular miracle, are you not? Yes, there is a stark similarity between the first feeding and the second one. But if there's one major thing I would note for you, it is the demeanor of these disciples that stand out to me the most. And perhaps, and in reflection, this would be the case in my diary because I see myself so much in them. My selfishness and my closed-door mentality, my reluctance to evangelize and share the good news of Jesus to those around me. I'm reminded of this YouTube clip that I watched many years ago. I used to work on campus with uh, Power to Change like many, many years ago now. Um, and during my time there, I did a lot of evangelistic work sharing the gospel, particularly at the University of Toronto. And one of the videos that I came across was, I love magic. Um, I know it's not real, by the way, but magic. Uh, Penn and Teller. Uh, they're renowned neo-atheists. They're actually like, um, you know, during their magic shows and and other interviews that they do, they speak um, very negatively about religion and uh, particularly against the Christian faith. But Penn has this one short clip on YouTube and you could probably find it, I'm sure it's still up there. And in this clip, he, he uh, talks about this one night where he's coming out of his show in Las Vegas and someone hands him, I think it was a Gideon New Testament or some kind of Bible, hands him a Bible and I guess just wishes him well, you know, God bless you or something like that. 
And in this, in this sort of like personal video, he just says, look, that's what a Christian ought to do. I don't believe this. I don't plan to believe it. Him giving me a Bible doesn't make me want to believe it. But that's what a Christian should do. If you believe, a, if you believe in a real heaven and a real hell, if you believe in a real eternal damnation for sinners, those who don't put their faith and their trust in Jesus, then you ought to be sharing the good news of Jesus with those around you, whether they choose to believe it or not. Whether it seems impossible to you or not, you ought to be sharing your faith with them. I kind of, you know, this two, maybe three-minute video, you know, I showed it to my students and kind of provoked us a little bit to see on the other side, someone not a believer telling us, hey, you ought to be sharing the gospel. So perhaps I see myself too much in these disciples who are reluctant to share. Finally, liberation for those that are satisfied the final small note that I'd like to make in today's text is centered around one word that we find at the end of verse 39. The word in English is translated in your Bibles likely as something along the lines of sent them away. The word in Greek is apoliein, which can mean to dismiss or in other cases to liberate, to liberate, to set free. Consider that the disciples wanted to send these people off as well, but not in the sense of liberation, to get rid of them. Jesus wanted to set, uh, send them away as well, to apolleing, but to liberate them. But he would only do so after they were fed. And so Jesus' response is that he cannot send them away without having given them food to eat. Food in the same sense he gives to Israel, and even in the same miraculous way when he fed the 5,000. Jesus is food for all. He is the bread of life, as John's gospel teaches us. Those who eat will not be sent away or dismissed hungry or not satisfied, but rather totally satisfied with absolute abundance. And so where the disciples might have wanted the dismissal of the Gentile crowd, Jesus and his compassion longed for their liberation, a liberation that would bring them ironically in, into the covenant family of God. Those who are satisfied in Jesus those of you sitting here who are Christian believe this, are liberated through Jesus. I love this quote from James Edwards in his commentary on this particular miracle. He writes, There's a lesson here for the people of God of every age, that its enemies are neither forsaken by God nor beyond the compassion of Jesus. We are reminded this day of the deep compassion and the true compassion and the intimate care that Christ has for his own. And as we enter into the season of Advent, we're reminded of this even more abundantly that Christ took on flesh to come to us, that God would be with us. Those he draws to himself, he cares for in ways that you and I find so hard to do, even for those we supposedly love, let alone those we are trying to love. Our attitude towards those around us, both those that know Jesus and those who do not know Jesus, tends to trend similarly to the disciples, does it not? We hold on to our loaves, our fish, and we eat ourselves, but caring for others, giving to others, now that's a practice we don't typically want to engage in. Why? Because that would mean sacrifice. That means vulnerability. That would mean doing more for such little outcome that isn't even guaranteed. Now, Kyle would never allow for me to end my sermon without giving some kind of 
analogy from Korea, so I got to do it. 2003, there was a, one of the most devastating accidents in uh, Korean uh, history. Uh, it was a subway train that caught on fire through an arsonist who set it on fire. It's a psychopath, basically. Uh, and he set this train on fire, and uh, around 58, 50, yeah, around 58 people died. Uh, passengers, just civilians. Uh, and the only survivors from this particular fire and accident in the city of Tegu uh, was the operator of the train. So the two conductors and then three employees. All five of them ended up going to jail. The reason was because they had what was called a master key. Now, I don't know how it works on the TTC because I haven't taken it in a while, but I imagine something similar exists, right? Uh, an emergency exit, if you will. For some reason in Korea, when, a, when there's an emergency, everything locks down. So all the doors were shut, everything locked down, and a key is in the possession of the conductors, the people who are operating this train. And this key can unlock all of these doors. Now, these men were so terrified of this fire and losing their own lives that they ended up ditching the train, all the passengers on it, gave no effort to help them, gave no effort to try and save even one of them, and just ran away. Yes, they survived, but they're all in jail today. The reason is because they had this key and they put no effort in trying to help others who they knew were in danger. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it speaks to the human heart. It speaks to our heart at times, even as believers who believe in, again, yet a real heaven and hell. But sometimes our mouths are left shut because of our fear and our anxiety and our reluctance to help. And perhaps it's a time in your life right now to consider how you could be a herald for the gospel of Jesus Christ in the context and circle you're found in. I'm drawn in today's passage to something so radically different in Jesus' heart from my own. He loves so much and it shows so much here. No matter where he's found, with whomever he's found with, he loves and cares them so. I find it humbling to know he cared for me, that I may be here today. I'm so grateful that love has been extended to you and I, that I may be with you today, this morning, worshiping our God together. Now, I don't say this often, and I don't mean to make this really cringy or about me in any way. I don't mean to convey this to make you feel uncomfortable. But in a genuine, real Christian way, should it not be a proclamation on my, from my mouth that I do love you? I don't know you. I don't know your names. I barely know your faces. And you barely know me. But the one thing that does unify us in the very true fact that you are a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, and one who believes in Christ as Savior of all and Lord of all, makes us brother and sister. And if we are family, then I do love you in a very real sense because you're my brother and sister in Christ, and Christ is our head. For his compassion does not end at multiplying food for the hungry that they may eat. No. His love took him first to take on flesh in the likeness of man, to live the life you and I clearly cannot live, blameless and sinless. And although innocent of any guilt or sin, he was hung on a sinner's cross, not for his own sin, but for ours. He shed blood, and that by that blood is our sin washed away. He died the death that you and I deserve, but three days pass and he conquered death and sin, proving he is God as that tomb was left empty on that fateful day. He rose and with him we too will rise. Faith in Christ, brothers and sisters, is salvation to those who believe. And if you're sitting here today and you don't believe in this and perhaps you're just contemplating the Christian faith and the gospel that we pre preach, I hope you've heard it clearly this morning. 
And I would hope that you would continue to contemplate these things. That perhaps God is leading you in a direction and path and way in which you will find Christ to be. And you will, and you will come to believe Christ to be uh, your Savior of all, Lord of all, of all your life. Praise be to God for his son Jesus, his compassion for you and I. Let's bow our heads in prayer. God, we thank you so much for your son Jesus. We thank you for his once for all atonement for our sins and sacrifices coming and taking on flesh. We thank you for um, gifting us something so precious, something we don't deserve by your grace and mercy. Lord, we are in awe constantly of this truth and reality, this gospel of Jesus that is so peculiar and yet so magnificent. We thank you for its mysteries. We also thank you for its truth. We thank you for allowing us to stand on the rock that is Christ. And we thank you for this church, this community, and the body that is here today, present and worshiping and glorifying you in many different ways. We ask, O oh Lord, that our lips would be ever so uh, emphatic and enthusiastic about sharing this gospel to the world around us. We thank you for everything you provide for us in our lives, and uh, especially for your word this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.